0: left behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. by Tim LaHaye and
1: Jerry B. Oh B. My God. God. <laughs> The future has come to pass.
0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to this week's episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that slogs our way through the Left Behind book series so you don't have to I am your lapsed evangelical, Shane Bazell, And I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. All right. So this week, I'm I'm feeling pretty good about this one, man. I really enjoyed getting into the second part of Nikolai, The Rise of the Antichrist. This was really fun. Like, this was a lot of action. We're still going to find plenty of things to talk about. I don't know about you, but I was really engaged throughout this whole section.
1: Yeah, much like the first part, this one was just, it was honestly a kind of entertaining read we're uh, again we're back at kind of book one territory with like the thriller aspects and it's it's been going pretty good there's a few like there's a few yikes uh moments in there yeah (laughs) but, uh, but compared to books one and two the yikes per page uh rate is much much lower I I think
0: that's to the book's credit. And I think that the fact that the yikes per page is down is because they're spending so much time trying to actually move the plot along, which we said plenty in part one, but this is almost inverted from Tribulation Force. Where Tribulation Force padded and plotted its whole way through, this one is just going and going and going. Now we get a little bit of intercutting between characters, but not even on the level of like a book one. This is... Pretty much gonna be just a Buck episode almost exclusively. We'll get some Ray stuff at the very beginning and you'll hear us talk about that. But it's a lot of Buck stuff, Buck and Zion together making a journey throughout pretty much the whole episode, and we'll do that from beginning to end.
1: Right. And I am taking up the uh the mantle of ecumenical fanboy full force because I have my copy of the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible. It's my preferred study bible because the footnote to verse ratio is about one to one wow so we're gonna get a lot of like little tidbits in there fun fact uh Jack Chick Industries, the guy that we um that we've kind of based our art off of and used some of our um our promo material from his uh, his estate does not like the ESV at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jack Chick
0: does not like pretty much any version of the Bible that's not King James, if I'm not
1: mistaken, right? Oh yeah, and even like the New King James version that they, they also like ra- raise their crosses at and hiss so. <laughs>
0: So uh, just for those of you who may not be familiar, and we've posted some memes and you guys see this on the Facebook. You see this when we post our promo videos. Jack Chick was a Christian tract artist I mean I guess we could call him a cartoonist is that fair to say yeah, he's he's a cartoonist. yeah. yeah I mean he's a cartoonist yeah. but he was responsible for a wave like the guy is prolific across an entire genre of witnessing tracts or of Christian bible tracts and those things if you didn't grow up in church or you're not familiar with what a tract is is they're kind of these little booklets, little stories, little comic books sometimes, and they are targeted at really anyone. They're small, they're cheap to print, easy to hang on to. You can get stacks and stacks of them, order them from like Christian supply companies, things like that. And their whole point is to be a witnessing tool and they cover all different kinds of topics, especially Jack Chick. I think he was active from like the 50s or 60s into like the 80s, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Okay. So. A whole broad range of topics. And oftentimes they have a pretty standard format, introduce a story or an idea. They provide a Christian perspective on that story or that idea. And then ultimately what they do is witness to the reader and give them a plan of salvation, typically toward the end. And they provide like phone numbers to call or places where you can go get a Bible, just Christian resources. Okay, I'm saved now. What are my next steps? And the whole idea behind these was that you would leave them places, like public places like malls or parks, you know, at the DMV, you know, whatever.
1: I've recently seen some at like a gas station, just like beside the the. the Oh yeah, gas stations, definitely.
0: And you know, they were meant to be eye-catching, They were meant to be engaging, but Jack Chick is kind of infamous. Um, Because you get a lot of these and they used to have a whole cart of them at my old church when I was growing up that you could just take and leave places. But these were not Chick Tracks. Chick Tracks are kind of infamous because of the wide variety of topics that Jack Chick wanted to write about. Not a big fan of Catholics. Hated Catholics thought that they were actually a continuation of Egyptian mystics that were perverting uh, God's will. He did not like other versions of the Bible that weren't King James. And he pretty much didn't like anything in pop culture specifically stuff like Dungeons and Dragons. So now that I've said that, if you've existed on the internet for any length of time, you may have come across a really infamous chick track called Dark Dungeons. Is that what it's called, Gav? I believe so, yes. Do you remember Dark Dungeons? Have you ever read
1: it? I do, yeah. I do remember Dark Dungeons. Yeah,
0: it's a story of a girl who uh, gets involved with playing Dungeons and Dragons that is her gateway to a satanic coven. All this literature about human sacrifice and suicide. It is, it's crazy. And it's probably the quintessential Jack check track.
1: And they made a movie out of that one, didn't they? I
0: think they made a movie as a joke. Like, the movie, I think, is satire. And it, the okay. movie's fairly recent. So it's it's a movie that adapts that tract, but it adds on to it a little bit. I think there's some, like, Lovecraft stuff in there as well. I think it includes all of the dialogue and the plot beats from the original tract. But if I'm not mistaken, I think it's meant to be satire.
1: Gotcha. If it's If it's okay. not,
0: then it is it is a brilliant work of unintentional satire because it is very funny.
1: The intense occult training through D&D prepared Debbie to accept the invitation to enter the witch's coven. Oh, yeah. I, pu- I pulled it up because th- this one's out of print you can only get it through custom order oh wow yeah but i mean there's scans of it all over the internet man yeah. like it
0: and there are there's a whole subgenre of jack chick memes of them basically taking the the word bubbles in there and kind of like mm-hmm. making like the zootopia abortion comic and just changing the words
1: yeah you know, yeah we can uh we can just put this in our show notes and i actually i put the the link in there
0: so yeah, yeah we'll put that in the show notes um and, and you know one day we need to do like a special episode highlighting some jack chick tracks or maybe reading them or maybe looking at them live that would be fun
1: yeah dude like just uh, kind of like a, a similar to our uh tim and jerry episode just about jack chick would be really yeah fun he's a wild cat man like he,
0: he had some really
1: crazy ideas All right, so are you about ready to get into this? Yeah, dude, let's start in with chapter 8, page 147 of Nikolai, the Rise of the Antichrist.
0: In which Nikolai ironically doesn't
1: appear that much, (laughs) especially in this part. (laughs) Right. We make our way to New Babylon uh, in their little tiny place in Iraq. Rayford and Amanda's little apartment. The Middle Eastern sun is beating down on them because Rayford is sitting by the air conditioner at the foot of his bed in his boxers. Who among us hasn't done that
0: on a hot day? (laughs) What I notice, or at least what my mental image is is Ray kind of like John McClane at the beginning of the first Die Hard. Mm -hmm. Like how he's just sitting there in his boxers, like making the little fists with his toes.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: like he's the whole party's going on outside and he doesn't want any part of it. And, you know, it's funny because like Ray is like the last person that really wants to be here because he's literally living in like the devil's like super city. Oh man, I wonder if that's what they're trying to do with like it was really hot there do you think that's them trying to be like symbolic and being like oh he's in the belly of the beast or he's close to the devil so it's really hot
1: I mean I I guess that's what's going on like kind of like oh man he's uh, he's only a few degrees away from hell maybe I'm Uh, looking into this
0: like the Chekhov's gun and some of the previous episodes like I'm looking for
1: stuff that's not there in a literary sense you know right
0: giving him too much credit
1: I think that'll be a theme as we get deeper into these books where we like read into them way too much I think we are and you know what I I don't mind because you know we're almost writing better books here (laughs) and uh interestingly enough amanda is in the apartment too although you wouldn't really know too much because as tribulation force didn't really touch on amanda too much neither is nikolai ever since she was kind of introduced she's kind of just been like rayford's carry-on bag and just goes wherever he goes does whatever he does and she has way less autonomy than even like another female character in the series like Chloe like Chloe's doing her own stuff kind of away from Buck and even though she's kind of a little bit tight at the hip she she has a bit more character to her whereas Amanda doesn't and I actually want to uh, touch on that a little bit because we actually had a viewer send us in some analysis about uh, Amanda and I quote You can analyze her as a vessel for the fetishization of the ideal woman based out of the books of Timothy and Proverbs, because those are huge things that were emphasized in the church and forced upon me, raised as a quote unquote woman of God. And to see a character shown as a goalpost, it was really destructive for young women in Christian communities. That's a
0: really good point. Like, I mean, you know, that's something that you and I would never get, you know, being raised as, you know, guys in the church. That's not something that I think we would ever get taught. Like, this is how you have to be, obviously. But I'm Mm -hmm. positive, you know, growing up in church that infected, and I'm going to use that word, my thought pattern as far as like what an ideal relationship looks like, what a marriage looks like, you know, even at a young age, there was something that that just or memory that that just triggered in me was uh, I think I heard I think there was a Baptist preacher one time. I'm going to mm-hmm. quote from the sermon because it always stuck with me and it was something that that sounded weird, but that I think kind of describes what their logic is like and kind of how they think. So I'm going to use it to illustrate a little bit of a broader point. The line from the sermon was that the man is the head of the household, right? Mm -hmm. And you cannot have two heads of a household because anything with two heads is a freak. Yeah, it's, it's real gross when you hear it. But like at the time, I heard it and was like, yeah, okay. And I think that a lot of people... When they hear stuff like that, especially in evangelical doctrine, because like we've talked about before, evangelicalism doesn't have the hundreds of years sort of doctrinal intellectual pedigree that some of the other uh, denominations have that have been around for longer. It's a way more, I'm going to call it more of a populist sect of Christianity. It's kind of for the people, for the regular common folk and their understanding of God. It's not ivory tower intellectual religion. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of how, or rather how these evangelical ideas get memed throughout those communities is a pastor will say something that sounds clever and pithy and like it wraps up exactly the point he's trying to make and it confirms an existing bias. And then those ideas start to spread. So when the existing bias is women should be subservient to the man, they should supplicate themselves to the man. And he says something like, well, you can't have two heads of a household. Anything like two heads is a freak that immediately clicks with people.
1: Right. And you, I can even see that like guys coming home and repeating that to their wives when they're not exactly going like lock in toe with what they want. So yeah, yeah, I definitely see that.
0: And like, that's a hard thing to argue against because you have to, backtrack and reframe the whole discussion so like let's say that someone says that to you you're like okay hang on your metaphor kind of breaks down anything with two heads yes but a family or family unit is not a physical organic being so you can't frame it like that i understand your metaphor but it doesn't really apply like and then you're in the weeds like it's a hard rather than an easy to digest pithy Saying that kind of makes sense on the surface, you have to actually make an argument and then, you know, it becomes a whole thing. And I think you lose people in that. That's why it's harder to meme stuff that actually is correct rather than these pithy sayings. And I think that's true for a lot of stuff. I mean, like we talked about Jack Chick earlier and that dude was very talented at getting a lot of ideas across in two or three or four comic book pages. And regardless of what kind of crazy stuff he was talking about, hating any version of the Bible that wasn't the King James, he was able to get all of his kind of boomer logic in very quickly. And then he drew very expressive characters. So this is stuff and ideas that are hitting on surface level beliefs that I think people already want to affirm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we're mm-hmm. going to see that as we go through even this section and i'm going to try to call it out because one of the reasons why and i don't think we mentioned this you even have your your tome your english standard version tome and uh, you sent me a picture of it before the show um in comparison with the nikolai paperback that you've got yeah. um and that book is enormous like
1: your your bible is huge it's over two nikolais <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's huge. And like you said, it's mostly footnotes. So it's mostly like context and commentary. I want to be able to look at this and all of the verses that they say in this section, because I think we're at 4 scripture directly quoted, probably the highest quotient that we've been at throughout the series, oh, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a few, uh there's a, a, a similar moment that I had in the first one where you were talking about the uh, the uh Nicodemus sort of dialogue that was going on. We have a few moments like that where they kind of just quote directly from scripture and it's kind of like you have uh, some, some Bible reenactment going on.
0: I think in this case, you and I probably bird dogged that a little quicker because they don't say... We are quoting from the Bible. They just say the stuff.
1: Yeah, because even compiling my show notes, I would just Google like lines of dialogue characters would say and like, oh, yep, there's that Bible verse. Exactly. So we'll
0: be able to provide a little more context. I pulled all the references and you're you're there ready with the Bible to to
1: add commentary. All right. So and- what's
0: what's happening with Amanda? So we we got on this tangent talking about
1: Amanda. So what's what's going on there? Well, Amanda, honestly, she's just with Ray. Like the, the two things in this first section that uh, I'll, I'll read all the parts that uh, even reference Amanda. It, it, it talks about that the apartment that they're in is also Amanda's. Amanda was safe and then that's it.
0: Yeah, cuz I didn't Amanda make her way back to
1: the states
0: Let's in the last see. section?
1: I, I believe so. Yes. So yeah, she's not even really there. She's just mentioned and that's uh that's a thing that kind of reoccurs a lot where Amanda's just kind of mentioned or there but doesn't get any more depth which is kind of sad because i got my hopes up about amanda white or amanda Steele. Now. yeah i got bad news for you buddy I don't think it improves from here. <laughs>
0: kind of like I said about Hattie, it doesn't get better from here. But at least being a good Christian wife, she doesn't get repeatedly bashed in the text. Right. Which we're going to get some of that too. You guys want some more Hattie bashing. Just just wait. So what's Ray worrying about? You mentioned some things. He has some conversations.
1: He has some inner monologue. He's worried that Verna Z, which is the uh, one of Buck's bosses slash coworkers, is threatening the security of the Tribulation Force's new safe house which is Loretta's kind of family home. So he's worried about that. Uh, he's trying to be able to get, make it to Bruce's memorial service that's happening in a few days. And he's also uh, just thinking about the computer archives that uh, Bruce has that he hasn't gotten a chance to come, go check out yeah. yet.
0: These books are, are never for lack of catching us up. So that's why when we get to divide <laughs> these into thirds, they always take time to reiterate certain plot points that are moving forward so that's why i actually like doing these in thirds is that a lot of times characters will take a break and remind the audience of stuff that's going on right especially if they haven't for a while so verna just to take a look back there that verna subplot is going to keep going for a little bit as we found out last week it looked like her and buck had put their little feud aside um as the bombs started falling you know they drove together he let her stay in loretta's house verna let buck borrow her car and then buck wrecked it and then he got her a new car and we thought that verna might be at least kind of doing a face turn a little bit starting to become an ally but that is starting to crumble yeah and because she knows about buck's connection to the church he she kind of has some peripheral knowledge of his connection to the tribulation force that is now kind of a security risk we get that little recap from ray and then i think next he has a conversation with hattie right
1: Actually, you know, right next is a small Rosenweig and uh, Buck. They're worried where Zion ben is. Buck's been looking for him. Haim doesn't even know where um uh, he is. The authorities are trying to implicate uh, Zion in the murders of his own family. Yeah, that's going to be very relevant. A driver for Zion also wound up dead and, uh, in a car bomb.
0: Yeah, it's our second car bomb.
1: Right, and uh, so now we get a new guy named andre who is like you got a ryan gosling-esque guy who's like trained to uh drive defensively check for car bombs defend buck they got a full-blown cool driver to make sure that heim doesn't die right
0: yeah because he's connected
1: probably my favorite line is like buck is just like well you know we'll have to use, um, uh, all of like these disguises to keep these people off our trail then. And, and Heim's like, Cameron, I'm afraid I'm not too good of this because not everyone can be Buck William. Yeah,
0: exactly. Not everybody else can put on a funny hat and just be fine.
1: They go back and forth about being like, well, should we get Carpathia in on the Zion, um, manhunt? Because he, he'll, he'd obviously, or he'd, he'd most likely have some information about this. So let's get him in on this. And Buck's like, uh, I don't trust him. And then Buck uses a payphone to call the King David Hotel. And he books a room for two weeks under one of his uh, aliases, which is Herb Katz. They ask, representing what company? And he says, international harvesters.
0: Now, um, just a little personal tidbit, my uh, my grandfather actually worked for International Harvester, which is a it's a trucking company makes uh, 18 wheelers like it's an automotive company. Oh, yep. (laughs) So when I heard that, I was like, "Eh, oh, but he's trying to do a pun. So that's why he says International Harvesters because of the point of like the great soul harvest.
1: Later in the series, he actually adds the S. I actually misquoted where he does say International Harvester the first time. Oh, yeah. And that's obviously also a reference to the Soul Harvest, which is coming up next book as well.
0: The important takeaway from this portion is that Buck now has a plan. Chaim has been contacted uh, by Zion, who says our mutual friends will be able to point him in the right direction. And Buck immediately figures out that he means the witnesses. Oh, yeah. Once we go and talk to the witnesses, which we are going to in, I think, a few a few pages That begins the portion that's going to take up the bulk of the episode, which we're going to rip through pretty quick because the book does. We're going to move along through the events pretty quickly, but we'll make sure to stop and and go over some of the details as we go forward. So we want to talk about Ray and Hattie's conversation, sort of the beginning of that.
1: Yeah, so Ray uh, gets woken up by a call from uh, Hattie Durham, and she sounds like a little bit in distress. She goes, I'd like to see you, if i could and at first he's trying to brush her off like hattie can this wait and she's like no I, I really need to talk to you nikolai has meetings from now until midnight and their dinner is being catered she's also like i know you want to be appropriate and all that it's not a date let's just have dinner somewhere it'll be obvious we're just old friends talking please please and she's like pleading with him, And he's just like, all right, just don't dress up for this if it's not a date. And she's just like, all right, fine. Stepping out is the last thing on my mind.
0: Exactly. So we know that Hattie, something's wrong. Yeah. And we're going to get a little bit more of that in chapter nine. So Buck goes to see Eli and Moisha. And uh, he makes his way to the Wailing Wall, passes by the guards. He's, he's just going everywhere he needs to go. This is kind of the Buck Williams trope. The Buck Williams superpowers. He can just get in anywhere he needs to go. And he goes to meet Eli and Moisha. And I had a thought. While this was going on, they they reiterate the content of the message, they reiterate the superpowers, the fire breathing, they reiterate how when they speak, everyone hears it in their own language, tons of people are flocking to them. Honestly, if I saw these guys, if I had missed the rapture, if I knew what had happened, even if I like was still very skeptical, if I saw these guys... I'd convert.
1: Yeah, because the, these guys are doing your big, like, Old Testament-esque big displays of magic and uh, and stuff like that, where you look at them and go, oh, man, did those, those two guys just brief fire on dude, dude?
0: <laughs> I would absolutely convert. Like, there's no question. And it makes sense why Nikolai hates these guys. He works for the devil, and if the devil doesn't want souls saved, these guys are directly interfering with his plans. So we get a reminder that Eli and Moisha are not going to be vulnerable until the appointed time. Mm-hmm. They let us know that the appointed time is three and a half years into the seven years, the literal halfway mark what else is supposed to happen at the exact halfway mark of the tribulation
1: uh that's when the indwelling happens exactly yeah that's
0: where the assassination and the indwelling happen which also correspond to some books we're eventually gonna read
1: oh man i'm i'm excited for those
0: i am too because i want you to experience them like i have to keep full restraint on spoilers because it gets a level of wild we have not encountered yet
1: (laughs) Right. And there's even like when I was going through the ESV's revelation, there's like a handy chart and like the the phrase demons from the abyss was in the footnotes. And I'm like, when do we get these demons?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just wait, buddy. Oh, yeah. The second half of the series, actually, the closest thing that I can tell you is it gets Stephen King-esque. Ah, okay. For about the second half, it gets very Dark Tower, The Stand. Maybe not so much in one-to-one content. Like, it's not like a ripoff or anything, but the feel becomes very Stephen King for the second half. Hmm. Obviously, Kmart, Stephen King. Stephen King obviously did it way better. But once we get to that point, if you guys like Stephen King, you're going to get some Stephen King levels of weirdness in the second half. But that's a long way off. We got a lot, we got a lot to go through
1: before we get there. So a huge crowd had gathered before the witnesses and people are kind of like weary, like they're keeping their distance now because like, all right, these guys uh, kill people that get too close. So we don't want to accidentally set that off. So everyone kind of starts moving away. and, uh, And after a while, Buck is the only one left and the witnesses don't move. They don't even seem to be breathing. It's like they're waiting for him. Yeah, there's no blink, no twitch. Neither of them open their mouth and he just hears this voice from the heavens that says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear.
0: There's our first direct scripture quote from Matthew 11.
1: All right, let me get out the...
0: (laughs) (laughs) All that needed was the loud thud of that
1: hitting a table and like dust flying up when you pulled that out. Matthew 11, verse uh, 15. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. He, and if you are willing to accept it, he uh, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, so he is Elijah who is to come. Uh, Malachi had um, prophesied that Elijah would prepare the way for Messiah. He did not actually imply uh, only a literal uh, reappearance of Elijah and John's earlier den- denial that he was Elijah was probably an attempt to correct the popular belief that Elijah himself would reappear before John's birth. He was designated as the one who would minister in the spirit and power of Elijah, therefore fulfilling Malachi's prophecy.
0: Yeah, and I think in that section they're referring to John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think the reason why this has been included, there's a plot reason, he's trying to get Buck's attention, and saying, hey, this message is for you, but Also, because it's Eli and Moisha, and we have now kind of surmised that they are incarnations of Moses and Elijah, this literally is probably Elijah speaking. So I think they're kind of having a little fun there with, uh, with the biblical canon. And then I think he follows it up with Matthew 28, 7. Okay, Matthew
1: 28, 7. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. See, I have told you. And and so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. The resurrection and the commission of Messiah. Matthew's concluding chapter recounts Jesus' resurrection from the dead. His resurrection confirms his identity and that his accomplishment at the cross was accepted by God the Father. Jesus now lives as the faithful companion, master, and Lord um, of those who respond to his Great Commission, and an empty tomb in a risen Jesus. The female disciples of Jesus discover an empty tomb after an angel announces Jesus' resurrection and instructs them. They meet the risen Jesus. We're actually going to get a character that you can kind of see as almost like an angel figure in this section too, which is interesting that they.
0: That's a good observation. Yeah, we are um, literally by name. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to point something out. The witnesses are using scripture as code here, Mm -hmm. and it actually does something that I have always had a little bit of a problem with in modern sort of Christian faith and the ideas of it. And it's a lot of pattern seeking and thinking that things that are in the Bible are encoded somehow or that God doesn't speak directly Personally, I think that if God wanted to be effective, he would just say it. Yeah. And I'm taking this from another another podcaster named Seth Andrews that I heard say this one time. He's got a podcast called The Thinking Atheist. He's a very well-spoken guy. So if you're halfway across the world, I can send you an email telling you exactly what I want to tell you, and it can get there in seconds. Yes. God is all-powerful. If he wants me to know something, just tell me. Yeah. Especially in this kind of a situation where what he's trying to communicate is, Hey, your friend who's a fugitive, whose life you're trying to save, this is where he is. Like no no tricks, no riddles, no puzzles to solve, and I understand that that makes for less interesting, less engaging storytelling, but like everything else we always talk about, this is more than just a story. It is reinforcing the way that people interpret biblical canon and actually apply their faith to their lives. They are taking this literally.
1: Yeah, and I can I can kind of see that because especially with the pattern-seeking thing, like humans are naturally inclined to try to find patterns and things. And when you give someone a giant book that's just full of like number like arrangements, you can kind of get lost in the sauce to a degree to put it bluntly. No, dude, that's that's a perfect description. You kind of get lost in the sauce.
0: And like, I don't know how many people you know or have encountered that have done like the crap, I need some guidance in my life. Let me pop the Bible open and put my finger on a random verse and that's what God is trying to tell me. That's just tarot cards, man. Yeah, that's bibliomancy. That's divination. Like, you're literally just doing the same thing that anybody with a tarot deck or reading runes or, like, Any other kind of like mystical divination, it's the same thing. It's just a random, you're trying to find meaning in the signal. That kind of stuff bothers me because, again, you're not approaching this from an understanding of the text itself or the history of the text or even what the text is trying to say. And that's why I love your Bible so much because it has context and it has explanation. But when you're trying to approach it that way, like this is all a big puzzle, like that's a step away from like QAnon logic.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely agree there.
0: Yeah, so we're seeing a little bit of that here, and it just doesn't sit well with me.
1: Uh, moving on to Chapter Nine. Rayford is going down to the front door of his condominium where Hattie's driver's waiting for him. It said that she had honored his request not to dress up, but even casually attired, she looked lovely. He decided not to say so, which is kind of a calling back again to Book One, where Hattie looked really nice at that dinner party, but he was too awkward turtles to be able to like bring up that "Hey, you look nice." <laughs> Yeah, exactly.
0: This first part of the chapter is all bashing Hattie. Now, it does move her plot a little bit forward, but she is glib. She is kind of self-centered, just the same way she's always portrayed. It's just bad. Like, I don't I don't like it.
1: Yeah, and like right after even like the, the book takes that subtle jab where he's like not saying that she looks nice, she is like clearly in distress. She's like, thank you. Like, I really appreciate you coming here, Ray. Can we get a quick vignette back to Buck uh, where Buck... Is uh, standing before the witnesses. They they tell him that he's in Galilee. Then they say again, without moving their lips, "He who has ears to hear, let him hear." He's not even sure that Galilee really even exists anymore, which it's um it's known by another uh, name now.
0: The Sea of Galilee is now Lake Tiberius. I think that they actually get used interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, Lake Tiberius, the Sea of
1: Galilee, is a is a
0: body of water in
1: Israel. Yeah, Eli says. Birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Books like, I don't understand. Like, stop speaking in riddles, give me more. And they go, He who has ears, and Buck, like, interrupts them is like, all right, I'll come back at midnight. I'll plead from your help then. Buck, he he's very frustrated at their dodging the question. Eli backs away and goes, Lo, I am with you until the end of the age. And and he's like, wait, though I've read that in the Bible. Those are those are Jesus's words. And he's like, is Jesus speaking directly to me through the v- mouths of these witnesses?
0: Yeah, we got two verses there. Um the son of man has nowhere to lay his head is Luke nine, fifty eight. And then the with you till the end of the age is Matthew twenty eight twenty. So they're using scripture like we saw earlier to illustrate, hey, this is what's going on right now. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You're going to find out why they said that when we actually come upon Dr. Ben Judah. Yeah. So they are literally telling him where he needs to go. But again, they're forming it in in the form of a puzzle. We cut back to Ray and Hattie and uh, they go to the Global Bistro together. We get a little bit more Hattie bashing that I'm going to sum up here. Um, they begin with Hattie kind of saying like, you know, I always wanted to be a flight attendant. In fact, the entire cheerleading squad at my high school wanted to be flight attendants. So it's a weird like I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a cheerleader, but like they're leaning on like a stereotype. Oh, of course, she was a cheerleader because she was pretty and she's dumb. Like, look at look at this pretty dumb girl that never really was going to amount to anything and is now carrying the Antichrist child. Like, it's Ugh. Yeah. But she's dodging and she mentions she had a thing for Buck Williams once and she's like, yeah, we never slept together, but, you know, I thought he was cute.
1: Yeah, and she's like, well, to tell you the truth, when you dumped me and, and Ray gets really defensive, like, well, I never dumped you. There's nothing to dump. You're not a- an item. And they kind of, like, go back to that like a few times, like, oh man, there's almost this fling and they just they keep on kind of, like, just bring it up like a bit too much, honestly.
0: Yeah, they kind of recap that. I think that's another Stanley style recap for people who are just picking up this book yeah we find out what Nikolai whispered to her when they arrived in New Babylon he said he pulled her in and said "Uh, what you're doing is inappropriate act like an adult
1: yeah which I think uh, yeah her reaction was a little bit I would say justified because here you are on live TV the guy that's supposed to like love you
0: yeah treating you poorly we find out stuff we kind of already know about Nikolai but we sort of get that Hattie is kind of over him like that in private he celebrates the violence he celebrates the war like he's having a grand old time obviously what he's doing in front of the rest of the world is a mask Mm -hmm. this is the bad guy we find out that his office suite number is 216 so we have 216 again and that office is not on the second floor so it's a weird office number for him to have i'll say again put a pin in that number we're coming back to it and i know it's not the number all of you guys are thinking of they're like why is 216 important isn't it a different number you're right we're going to come back to that.
1: And their relationship has kind of fallen apart almost mutually. Like it seems Carpathia is just keeping her around as like a trophy. I think it even explicitly says that at some point in the text. It's just, it's just a bad time all around in the relationship. It, it, it doesn't even look like Carpathia is going to marry her really anymore. Like, yeah. They
0: don't even sleep in the same bed. They don't sleep in the same bedroom. Like they, they yeah. live in different quarters.
1: Yeah. Which is, It's just sad. Poor Hattie.
0: (laughs) And then we get into the first of a couple of different abortion conversations. So So, we weren't going to get through this Christian book series without some moralizing vis-a-vis abortion. The way that they paint Hattie is that women who have abortions are all lost, alienated, they have no friends and loved ones, so they need people to come alongside them and encourage them. Now, that's the way the book is portraying it. Obviously, any situation in which someone has to abort a pregnancy can be traumatic. They happen for a myriad of reasons. It is a very complicated personal matter. And to have Ray and the voice of the book kind of try to boil it down to, these women just had people around them who loved them. uh, They wouldn't get abortions is
1: really insulting. Oh, yeah. Not a fan of that. Yeah. And like we're we won't linger on it too far just yet because they come back to it a few times. So I have ample uh, moments to pick this apart. Oh, yeah. So then we go back to Buck's perspective and Buck has a dream where he was Joseph, Mary's husband, and he heard an angel of the Lord saying, Arise flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you a word.
0: Yeah. And that's from Matthew chapter two, verse 13. Um, it actually happens after the three magi, the three wise men have visited Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the flight to Egypt is part of that, you know, Christmas canon that we hear about a lot the nativity canon and they are actually running from king herod Mm -hmm. so the flight to egypt running from king herod that is kind of foreshadowing to if we're putting ben judah in the place of kind of the jesus here jesus having to flee to egypt they are also going to have to flee to egypt and we're going to learn about why um, because they are also going to be running from the law the ruling authority that's going to happen a little later Real quick cut back to Ray and Hattie one more time before we close out the chapter. We learn that Hattie is aware that Ray and other Christians consider Nikolai to be the Antichrist. That's where we end. Chapter 10, we find out that Hattie has decided to go to the States with Ray. She's not going to tell Nikolai because Nikolai's pretty much written her off. He's like, yeah, do what you want. Don't bother me about it. I got a world to run. Yeah. So we end with Hattie deciding to go with Ray to the States, at least, you know, for the first leg of her trip, and she's going to go see her family. So Hattie's getting out of New Babylon. That kind of puts her piece in play for what's going to happen for the
1: rest of the book. Gotcha. And we get into chapter 10. Where Buck and his bag with every electronic device in the world in his little bag, you got his his dictation machine, sub-notebook computer, which would soon be replaced by the mother of all computers, his camera, that great cell phone, his toiletries, and two changes of clothing.
0: I don't know what a sub notebook computer is. I don't think that's a thing. I think they're trying to say like it's like a netbook, like a really small laptop, but they couldn't envision that in the 90s, so they just call it a sub notebook.
1: Yeah, I guess so. I don't know,
0: dude. It's just the the technobabble in these books. It's just so stupid.
1: Buck goes to a cab and goes how far to uh, Galilee? It's about 120 kilometers away gets in and he goes to the wailing wall and a small group of sailors strolled past the raw iron fence at the end of the wall where two witnesses usually stood and preached the sailors chatted in english and one point i think that's them right over there the two mysterious figures sat with their backs against it feet tucked under them chin resting on their knees they're motionless appearing to sleep the sailors gawked and tiptoed closer. They never got within a hundred feet of the fence. Apparently heard, heard enough stories, which that little part I like. Cause it's kind of like, you have just these like superstitious state sailors that were just like, I don't know, man, these people, uh, People usually don't uh, return when they when they mess with those guys. So we just steer yeah, clear of them.
0: and this has been going on for eighteen months. So you know, people pretty much know to steer clear. I mean, enough enough deaths by immolation have happened that people steer clear of them. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I wanted to point out is Buck when they drive by the temple says that the new temple looked like something out of a three dimensional picture show. Really weird way to write that. Huh. What's important is that he mentions that at one point, Nikolai is going to enter that temple and declare himself God. That is the first time that we have heard that mentioned. Oh. Stay tuned. <laughs> I am. That's going to be down the road, but but there's a whole book specifically that actually even the cover art shows that happening. Oh, man. Yeah. I'll let you look at your covers and uh, and figure out which one that is. Okay. we'll We'll kind of move along here because the book is about to start picking up the pace. So he goes and sees the witnesses by night. This is actually where Buck interrupts one of the witnesses. Like one of them starts to talk and he's like, no, 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 just get to the point. And they're like, would you dare
1: interrupt the servants of the most high God?
0: Yeah, Buck, dude, calm down. <laughs> they, they kill people.
1: Buck is like, give me a sign. And he's like, well, first you must communicate with one who loves you. Phone ring. Chloe calls him and tell and she gets another Holy Spirit premonition like, hey, don't go back to the King David Hotel tonight.
0: Yep. So there's your sign. And this is something that you hear all the time in Christian circles about premonitions, about leadings of the spirit. They call it walking in the spirit in this one. The idea that the Holy Spirit just prompts you or pushes you to do things. Yeah. We've kind of mentioned that before. Does it come from within or is it actually the Holy Spirit? I don't know. But, you know, that's kind of something that's that's very active in evangelical circles is that God doesn't speak with an audible voice, except in this case, I guess. <laughs> but that's kind of what we hear. So even Buck is saying, man, I wish these guys weren't so cryptic. They then begin shouting at him as soon as he wishes they weren't cryptic. They start shouting at him the words from Acts chapter 2, verse 17.
1: And the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions And your old men shall dream dreams.
0: So basically what they're trying to tell him is like, hey, that dream you had, that thing you're thinking about was correct. Now go do it.
1: To just read the footnote here, the last days are not just in the distant future, but were inaugurated at Pentecost and will continue until Christ's return. They are the last days in the coming of Messiah, long predicted in the Old Testament has now occurred. His saving death and resurrection has been accomplished, and now the work of the Holy Spirit in building the church is a key event in the history of salvation that needs to occur before Christ returns. Most rabbis believe the Spirit had ceased speaking through human prophets with the last of the Old Testament prophets. Joel's prophecy of outpouring of the spirit on all flesh was understood as referring to a new messianic age the women in the upper room participate in the gift of the spirit at pentecost further confirming joel's prophecy it's just a little extra bit there.
0: What they're saying there is that in the book of Acts in the New Testament, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, the day of Pentecost, which is where we get the word Pentecostal, which is what denomination I grew up in, was the day that the Holy Spirit descended on the early church and gave them those supernatural powers, the ability to witness, the ability to speak in other tongues, all those things we've talked about in previous episodes. What they're kind of trying to say here in Left Behind is that these tribulation saints are taking on the role of like the early church, the early apostles. You know, if Christians reading this, they probably think that's pretty cool. You know, that it's like they are living in the beginning of the, uh, of the New Testament, of a new age, a new epoch, as far as how God interacts with people on earth. Mm-hmm. God has not left the world. God has not left the world behind he is still very active and present. Buck takes that warning and he takes that prompting and he goes to the Sea of Galilee, literally walks along the Sea of Galilee, which is a very biblical illusion, a very biblical image. And he meets a boatman named Michael. Now there's your there's your angel figure.
1: Yep, uh, in reference to St. Michael, who's also called Archangel Michael.
0: So he hires this boat boatman's name is Michael they get out onto the Sea of Galilee which taking a boat onto the Sea of Galilee another gospel illusion with the apostles the fishermen it's all there this, this whole section is kind of a tour of different places in the bible kind of the hot spots that when Christians take their little mission trips and stuff to the holy land they're going to hit you know the touristy spots the bible tourism and they get out onto the lake and something happens Michael kills the motor kills the
1: lights and points an automatic rifle at buck's head <laughs> and he says no trouble mr cats until your eyes grow accustomed to the darkness you're not going to be able to see that i've got a high powered weapon point at your head I would like for you to remain seated and answer a few of my questions. Fucking's like, I mean you no know, harm, man. You got you got nothing to fear to me. And he's like, Oh, I'm not the one that should be afraid right now, sir. Yeah. I've twice within the last 48 hours fired this weapon into the heads of people I believe were enemies of God.
0: Okay, so we're gonna talk about this for a hot second. Okay. I mentioned this was coming in one of the previous episodes. This guy is protecting Zion Ben Judah. Mm -hmm. That's what we're going to learn is that he is protecting Zion Ben Judah. He is one of the 144,000. He is keeping Ben Judah safe. He is doing it by killing people. I literally wrote in my notes, what the f***? (laughs) And it, it gets worse because buck straight up asks him how do you justify murdering people he says i don't consider it murder
1: oh god Holy <laughs> Is this, is this getting into like the whole, like, cause I'm not sure if you've heard like the whole killing versus murder dichotomy that gets thrown around a lot sometimes. I think so.
0: I, cause I, I know what you're talking about, you know, like the, does the 10 commandments say thou shalt not kill? Or does it say thou shalt do no murder? Is there a difference? Is there such a thing as justifiable homicide? Does war count? Like all these other things. And they just kind of breeze on past it. Like they act like they're going to interrogate it for a minute, but then they don't. Like, the guy just says, I don't consider it murder. And Buck just goes, oh, okay. okay. It is incredibly messed up. Specifically because this is feeding into that sort of evangelical prepper kind of right-wing gun nut shit. Oh, the enemies of God are literally enemy combatants. Kill them all, let
1: God sort them out.
0: Yeah, kill them all, let God sort them out. And that's not going to really stop. This is one of the first instances of looking at people who are working for the global community, who are not Christians, who are not among the elect as enemy combatants. And that is dangerous language.
1: Yeah. And not a fan. Michael keeps on like, uh, like referring to like, hey, uh, like, how do you know I'm not about to kill you? How do you know I'm not about to kill you? And I'm like, I don't know, man. Maybe you should calm down, Michael.
0: Yeah, dude, it's real bad. Um, I'm going to take a minute and calm down. Because that, that sorry, we're living in 2021 now. The whole idea of using violence against the, quote, enemies of God is something that we've had to hear, like, in the last few weeks. Yeah. Just go take a look at conservative TikTok. Oh, man. Actually, don't. Don't ruin your TikTok stream like that. <laughs> Don't ruin your recommendeds like that. I, uh, but.
1: I wrote in the margin, answer this trivia or you're dead, because that happens at one point. Buck gets Bible trivia at gunpoint. Like, he, he has to prove that he's a Christian by, like, quickly uh, r- uh, rattling off six prophecies of Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, according to the preachers at the Wailing Wall.
0: Hey, look, at least that's comforting to know we'd probably pass that test now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm going to I'm going to try to dial down the intensity a little bit. It's just come on like it's it's irresponsible. Right. That's that's the best word I can use to describe this is irresponsible language.
1: So after that situation becomes resolved and Michael lowers the gun, he finds out that Michael is actually another person being mentored by Eli and Moshe. So he is an evangelist in the matter of Paul the apostle according to dr ben judah so this is another guy that's been kind of taught by yeah but paul the
0: apostle wasn't strapped sorry
1: Yeah, so just another guy that has is under the tutelage of Ben Judah and Eli and Moisha as part of like the the new wave of people getting converted.
0: And we find out that they have actually been waiting for Buck. And this is a, another little biblical illusion on top of all the other ones is that Eli and Moisha have actually prophesied that Buck would be the deliverer who will come and rescue Ben Judah. Oh, okay. Which the idea of a deliverer or a redeemer is present in Bible stories in both the Old and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. You have figures like Moses and Boaz in the Old Testament, and then, of course, the ultimate deliverer, Jesus in the New Testament. So more allusions. And so we meet Ben Judah. He He is broken. He is in mourning because his family has been murdered. We actually find out that the driver was not a believer. He was close, but he wasn't. And I just wrote oh yeah, whoops, the driver's going to hell. Oh no. <laughs> really bummed me out. Like, yeah, he's, he's, according to their canon, he's going to hell, which sucks. And then Buck finally kind of lays out his plan, says that they need to escape. They need to escape through Egypt instead of Israel. And they have this whole convoluted plan about how they're going to get over the border and how they're going to get there. I think Michael is the one who says, I would not challenge God to do something so simple. Mm-hmm. I just wrote in all caps, this wasn't simple. None of this was simple. Like, this could have been an email. Yeah. (laughs) That's what takes us out of chapter 10.
1: So Buck is finally arriving to their little hideout, which is hidden in a grove of trees, which has, like, a little opening to an underground shelter that you wouldn't see if you hadn't really, like, been looking for it. So Buck goes in there. And sees like just a debilitated Zion who's just sitting in the corner, rocking back and forth crying. He's not even looking up to see that Buck's there yet. He's kind of just in his own head and just trying to calm himself down, which, you know, can't blame him. He went from having like a pretty high stature in an organization all the way down to like having to hide out in a cave so
0: yeah he is he's completely broken like his whole life has been destroyed everything that when his wife in tribulation force said our lives are ruined that wasn't even the half of it like his library has been destroyed his reputation he's now a wanted man for a crime he didn't commit and he is in mourning and evoking the biblical idea of sackcloth and ashes, mm-hmm. evo- he's almost evoking Job. Yeah, I a can, little
1: bit. Th- th- this is definitely a Job moment going on because he even has a moment where Buck's just trying to calm down. He's like, you know, we your wife and children, they're believers, right? And he goes, today they will see God.
0: Yeah. The story of Job in the Old Testament is about uh, God allowing a lot of bad things to happen to one man who is very loyal and and strong in his faith and seeing if his faith breaks mm-hmm. it's a competition almost between god and the satan or satan the adversary uh, to see if this man's faith will break and he loses everything
1: so he doesn't even have like any of his notes to like continue his research buck kind of offers an alternative and he pulls out his laptop and he's like hey not sure much battery life is left this has the bible on it so Here, go crazy, man. Like, start reading from it. So they get a little prayer circle together. Zion starts reviewing some of the Old Testament and starts praying.
0: Yeah, they start reading from the book of Psalms. Oh, okay. Which Psalms is actually, it's a book of poetry. They're mostly written by King David, the biblical King David. It's a different type of poetry than what we would read in English. I actually did uh, some study on Hebrew poetry when I was in high school. Oh and the whole idea behind ancient Hebrew poetry from what I was taught was that it's a lot more about mirroring of themes and ideas than it is about things like sounds, phonemes, and meter, and things like that. There's definitely a there can be a meter to it, and it's very lyrical when it's read in the original Hebrew. Right, but. which
1: is why a lot, of, uh, a lot of psalms get turned directly into hymns.
0: Yes, but when you're reading it, at least when you're analyzing it, you don't analyze it the way that you analyze Western poetry. It's a lot more about how are the themes mirrored, what are some of the words and the imagery that's being Being used. Um, You spend a lot more on that, less than like, you know, meter and rhyme. Mm -hmm. They begin to do that. And you have another one of those, like you said, a prayer circle moment where everyone sort of feels steamrolled by the Spirit of God, I think is the quote. Real quick, he also says, All the pieces of the puzzle were falling together. Again, doesn't need to be a puzzle. Just have God tell you what he wants to do. If he wants this man's life saved and him extricated from this situation, Just give them the plan, God. Don't make it national treasure. (laughs) So I did a little bit of research because they start getting into their kind of A-team, getting everything together moment. Uh, Michael offers Buck an old school bus to let him drive through the Sinai Desert. By modern estimation um, on Google Maps, the trip that they were going to take is going to take about eight and a half hours i don't know if this is different i didn't look at the timeline could not drive at least now you can't drive a lot directly along the mediterranean the the coast of the mediterranean because that will take you through gaza yeah the route that i looked at actually took some very long circuitous routes to get you back to uh Alarish, Al-Arish international airport in egypt so my research different border crossing different everything but it said eight and a half hours yeah. which you know is that's a bit of a, a ride for yeah. the the clunky old bus that they're taking it's
1: about a playthrough of, of desert bus which <laughs> very yeah. literally in this case
0: man i've never actually played desert bus i need to do it at least once oh yeah
1: maybe we could uh maybe we could do that for like a side thing one day where we we do we go <laughs> we go the nikolai uh the nikolai bus trek
0: Yeah. So I saw the line that they were trying to guess why God allowed these awful things to happen. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, I mean, yeah, like, that's kind of why I don't believe anymore. Like, that's just the problem of evil. Yeah. And it's, again, one of those things that they bring up, but then they never address. Like, they don't interrogate it at all. They just sort of pay lip service to it and don't try to offer a reason. They just sort of just go, eh. Which was a lot of my experience growing up in church.
1: Yeah, same here.
0: They all kind of start spontaneously quoting scripture because they are sort of led to, even Buck, like scripture just starts coming out of his mouth. And by the end of that little moment, he uses another
1: phrase that you hear a lot in church. We are all in agreement. I've actually, I, I don't recall hearing that whenever I was in, uh, at least that wasn't something that got thrown on in Baptist. Uh, it's a.
0: It may be more of a Pentecostal thing. In the King James version, the it would be translated as "We are all of one accord."
1: Ah, okay. so you may have
0: heard that. What it means is that we are all kind of yes-anding each other in a specific direction. Okay, gotcha. Um, if we're all listening for God, we are in agreement. Means I think we've all kind of heard God say the same thing. Okay remember, God doesn't talk with an audible voice. Also, there's a moment where that's related to that, where Buck says, hey, I have some phony IDs. You can hang on to these. And Zion says, I have felt no leading that we should use these. So instead of saying yes and, Zion says no. Ah. So that is something they are, quote, not in agreement on. When you're basing your action off of prompting from God, it gets more complicated when you bring more people into it. And One of the psychological things that goes on in a lot of cases is if you've all decided you're going to look for leading from God, you really have to be careful with what you put forward and make sure everybody kind of feels like you're on
1: the right track. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Am I making any sense at all with this?
1: Yeah, you all got to make sure you're kind of like syncing up your Holy Spirit watches, so to speak that's a good that's a good way of putting it because uh even how me and you have kind of observed the being led by the spirit can sometimes just be oh like you were just gonna do something that you felt compelled to anyway but with like just a veneer of spirituality over it so when you have like 10 people all being led by the spirit if they're not all kind of on the same doctrinal wavelength they can go on like many different uh, directions. that's where denomination schisms occur Especially within Protestantism, where there's not like a, a set bureaucratic system to try to like figure out what the spirit is going. You just got a bunch of people in New England being like, well, God said this to me, so I'm going this way.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's why there are so many denominations, is everybody feels a little bit of a different pull. And whether that pull is from God or whether it's not, you know, we're never gonna know. Right. Never gonna know until the hereafter, brother.
1: <laughs> oh, better <laughs> days for better ways. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> we we actually begin to start the journey in earnest. Zion throws the contents of his wallet into the Jordan. He is now trying to go off the grid. And we begin, and I I talked to somebody about this today. The journey they're about to go on mirrors pretty much every missionary story that I heard in church about border crossing or trying to get into a country that was maybe hostile to missionaries. Did you- Get a lot of that growing up with like missionaries visiting your church.
1: We had a few like mission trips going out, but I never really like heard many stories. So I'll let you kind of take a take, take story time for this one. Cause yeah, like even though missionary work was a part of the church I went to, it wasn't like a big like feature.
0: Yeah. Assemblies of God have a big focus on international missions and that's not just a focus doctrinally. It's also monetarily. Mm hmm. Typically, what would happen is, you know, maybe once or twice a year, we would have a missions week. It would involve everything from learning about other countries to like even in Sunday school, us basically doing like a geography unit. And that's why I got really good at geography and was really good at where in the world is Carmen San Diego? (laughs) When I was a kid, ask your parents, kids. So even like learning about geography, learning about these other parts of the world, learning about what was going on in those parts of the world, it was a big focus. And they would typically bring in a guest missionary from another country or who was doing mission work in another country to talk about what they were doing talk about what their experience was usually they would take the place of the pastor for that Sunday and there was always special offerings that got taken up for them so when the offering we had bags we didn't have offering plates but when the offering got passed around that was to fund them specific donations for them so that was a I think probably once or twice a year occurrence always came with a big food festival we had an international Food festival that was awesome. So always looked forward to missions week, but without fail, each one of these missionaries would always tell a story about some sort of hostile border crossing or having to deal with police or border guards or people like that that were trying to keep them out of the country or maybe looking for them, things like that. And how God miraculously protected them the whole way. So as we hear about this story, because this is going to take us out through the end of our section here, I have heard this story a thousand times. The details slightly change, but the main plot beats kind of remain the same. This felt very nostalgic and familiar.
1: Yeah, and I even have uh, this one line highlight. Sometimes it seemed that short of God sending an angel to whisk you away, no one as recognizable and as, a, as much as a fugitive as you could slip past Israeli borders.
0: Yeah, exactly. So that's something that, uh, that, that really stuck out to me. We kind of end out chapter 11 with Chloe calling Ray worried about Buck. This is another one of those leading of the spirit things. People start praying for Buck actively in the moment. And there is, at least in in my growing up, you know, in the Pentecostal tradition, the idea that prayer in the moment has an impact. So if you wake up in the middle of the night feeling like you're supposed to pray for somebody by God, you better do it.
1: Yeah. And uh, that was uh, that was a major feature of I'm pretty sure this is a major feature of every denomination of church. We're like at the end of like youth group yeah, or youth group or any organization of believers. They would have prayer requests and they would just go around the room and pray about like anything that's on anyone's mind that week.
0: So we move on into chapter 12. We start off with a pretty sad moment because we talked about it a little already.
1: But Zion, up until this point, did not know that his driver
0: uh, had been killed.
1: Zion searches uh, absolutely distraught, and he starts, like, recapping some memories he has. And he's like, Cameron, his name was Jaime, and he had been with me since I started teaching at the university. He was not an educated man. However, he was wise in the ways of the world. We talked much about my findings. He and my wife were um, the only ones besides my student assistants who knew what I was going to say on the television broadcast. He was close, Cameron. So close. But he's no longer with us, is he?
0: And uh, no, he's not. Yeah. He's in
1: hell, Zion. Man,
0: that just, that bugs me. Like, and I know there are different Christian interpretations of this. I know that not not every Christian believes that that guy would be in hell.
1: Yeah, someone might say he's in like a purgatory-esque place. Yeah,
0: I know C.S. Lewis definitely would.
1: Even though Jaime wasn't a believer, he did kind of give his life in the service of god so like some would say he was serving the kingdom yeah yeah so there is like an extra like an afterlife process where like you you go through like the repentance stage after death and then that purifies your soul to uh go to heaven um i'm not sure if that's how any do- denomination works up specifically, that's kind of what what it's like.
0: yeah, and I find that to be really comforting, even though that hasn't wasn't how I was brought up. I'd like to believe that that's the case you know if if all heaven and hell and everything are real but not what I believe yeah. but it's way more comforting and makes a lot more ethical sense doesn't paint God as a very callous black and white binary being you know
1: right when I think of the afterlife too I'd like to I'd like to believe that hell isn't a place if you don't go to heaven so to speak there is at least a continuation on where like there's not just torture yeah exactly
0: so we move on and we've officially reached papers please levels of (laughs) dystopia Welcome, oh, Gavin. heck
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, so the guy uh, rolls up to the checkpoint. They're not even at a checkpoint yet. Buck just uh, gets to the side of the road. You have to top to, off like, the radiator. Yeah, t- top off the radiator. Then all of a sudden, like a global community peacekeeper rolls up and says, please remain outside your vehicle. He goes, uh, my name's Herb Katz. He-, he literally says, your papers, please. And he pulls out his phony passport and uh, wallet. The guy shines a light into Buck's face and then shines him back at the uh, the passport. He starts questioning him saying like all right how'd you even get this bus it's it's relatively new he's like oh bought it in jericho and then he starts getting like oh do you know there's a manhunt in the country and the guy that you bought this bus from is actually involved in this whole plot you know anything about that uh, mr Katz?
0: so yeah we learned that michael has been captured and is now being held uh, aiding and abetting a wanted fugitive mm-hmm. the bus's plates are marked they're gonna have a little bit of a harder time crossing the border and the cops aren't stupid, which I actually found was pretty refreshing. Like, they do their job, they follow procedure, they're not like Keystone cops tripping and falling all over the place. They do everything they're supposed to do.
1: Yeah, and so they're like, all right, your paperwork seems to be in order, but we gotta just search your bus for, for any evidence of any fugitive, just a formality. Buck's like, uh, oh, uh, uh, okay. And then he goes on the bus, he reprimands them, but not for Zion. There was some kind of, uh, what are you gonna do with this vehicle like after you get to the airport like come on man like what's your plan here is like oh yeah i'm just gonna sell it and he's just like okay man you, you wealthy americans
0: yeah he gets he gets on him he starts questioning him you know in that kind of cop
1: way of like what are you
0: doing where are you going what's your plan you know that typical like you know if you've ever been pulled over yeah <laughs> you know and so he goes onto the bus And for the first time in his life, Buck Williams was tempted to kill a man.
1: Yeah. There it is again. Buck's just ready to off this global community guy. Yeah, dude. And like, apparently, according to
0: this book's ethics, that's not a problem. But he doesn't.
1: I actually want to re- read the next part. Buck was tempted to kill a man. He knew the officer was just a pawn in a cosmic game—the war between good and evil. That that kind of irked me the wrong way too. Where it's just like, oh yeah, just um a random dude. Well, he's just a pawn, dude. So like, screw him, you know. It's
0: borderline QAnon yeah. thinking that if you are among the elect, and I've, I've said that phrase already, meaning you have the insider knowledge about the bigger picture, you are fundamentally more human and more deserving of taking certain types of action. Yeah. And that is something that infiltrates a lot of conspiracy thinking and now is, you know, great example would be QAnon. You are entitled yeah. to take that action. And I think January 6th, great example we are entitled to storm the capitol uh because we are the elect yeah and we are doing this in the name of god they actually got into the uh the chamber the senate chamber and they held a prayer circle
1: i didn't see that part holy crap
0: yeah there's a video of it they prayed that they are doing god's will so that's really dangerous stuff man
1: yeah like i i hate this
0: But we find out that the guy gets on the bus, looks around, gets off the bus, says you're free to go.
1: Yep. He gets back in and he starts scanning the bus for Zion and Zion's not there. And all of a sudden, he just starts driving down the road and makes a U-turn and Zion's just on the side of the road. And he's like, how'd you do that, man? He's like, oh, I felt like it was time for me to just use the bathroom and there was just the right moment for me to get off the bus.
0: God works in mysterious ways. Sometimes you got to go take a leak at the exact right time. (laughs) So we get a little bit more of a recap of Buck kind of telling Zion and trying to encourage him by telling him stories of the tribulation force. And poor Zion says, I really want to meet this Bruce Barnes. Uh, and Buck just has to say, you, you will uh, at the glorious appearing, which is, you know, it, it's a nice little moment. Like all the moments of
1: like dealing with grief are, are not handled poorly like they're 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 fine i would say like uh as a grief simulation of like how people would feel in this in this scenario it goes well like we make the joke of sad boy rayford but like honestly that's some of the most like empathetic moments you can have with ray where you're like man i feel you dude yeah, An interesting little note, I might be, again, reading too much into the text, but Zion is wondering what happens to like a lot of dead bodies that are taken by global community. That is what bothers me. You never see what happens to the bodies. Do they bury them? Do they burn them? I don't know. But the mere imagining of it is deeply troubling to me. I feel like something sinister is going to happen there, but we'll get into later.
0: Yeah, when the wheels start coming off in the second half of the series, I think they get into that. Okay. We're getting up to one of your favorite parts. I'm going to let you take over. But before that, the last thing I want to mention is that in the whole God works in mysterious ways, Bruce Barnes built this underground shelter. Buck is trying to make it back to America with a GC fugitive and now has the perfect place to set him up. Mm -hmm. And he mentions that he wants to set Zion up in the underground shelter so that he is safe underneath the church but then buck starts thinking about his journalism career Mm -hmm. how he doesn't want to be in it anymore
1: well we get to the line where he he says for how long could he pretend to be cooperative if not loyal employee of Nikolai carpathia his journalism was no longer objective it was propaganda. It was what George Orwell would have called Newspeak in his famous novel 1984. This is our first instance of, oh man, this is just like 1984, dude. All right. So can I can I give a little background for you before we do this? Yeah, go
0: ahead. We've had this conversation when we started reading this book because Gavin has spent a lot of time delving into Orwell's text, and you did it as a as a theater director. Yeah. You've spent a lot of time examining Orwell and his life and his career as an anti-fascist and, you know, all of these aspects of Orwell the man and the text. How did this whole part sit with you, buddy?
1: First of all, they're not really even talking about the right part of 1984 if they wanted to make this reference. Of course you have like the whole a super massive fascist state that control every narrative of what gets published but that's not exactly what newspeak is and i have a little kind of background on newspeak so newspeak is the fictional controlled language in 1984 designed to limit the range of thought itself and expression of the populace done by the slow simplification of language and the removal of words altogether. For example, like the most archetypal way that they do it is good, better, and best. They would simplify that to good plus good and then double plus good. So better and best out of the dictionary no use for them because this new language system has it. And then any antonym to good is now ungood, plus ungood, and double plus ungood. So very slowly, language is whittled down to the bone. And Even that within the context of 1984, if the totalitarian state ever had to lift Some of these restrictions just to, because Newspeak as a language to communicate and run a country is very uh, ineffective. I even have this one little quote from a, a good spin-off work that I want to reference to make a point. Newspeakers also had trouble of maintaining newspeak itself. Without an old-speak vocabulary, many newspeakers lacked the ability to clarify differing interpretations of newspeak, words in their everyday interactions with co-workers. good thankful, for instance, connotated slightly different things to different people. Individuals' vocabularies were narrow. Oceanian society's vocabulary as a whole was diverse and Anarchic with a few words to choose from. New speakers soon developed a rich, varied system of allegories, metaphors, and similes. Compared to old speak, new speak became extremely vague and even harder to police, which for a real-world example of what they're talking about, if you've ever been like in a Twitch chat, they can take like a few terms and start to like make this like semi-complex uh, localized language using some of this stuff. I bring this up to to make the point that a lot of the ways that a lot of evangelicals will point towards a lot of linguistic developments within the last uh, few decades with like the more Uh, accepting towards uh, trans pronouns, they'll start referring to that as new speak, which I think is not really accurate because a lot of the linguistic developments in the last few decades have actually expanded the range of thought. New ideas are are now being given the linguistic capability to be expressed where they have been kind of suppressed before, which leads me on to, in left behind, a new speak-esque word has been brought up a lot within the text. The word antichrist has a similar function to calling things a thought crime within the context of 1984. Because anytime you begin to express ideas that go outside your particular denomination's ideas, you get instantly shut down. And that's that's ungood, comrade. You shouldn't be talking like that. You need to stop being unchrist, so to speak.
0: To, to kind of jump off that point is that there is a tendency on the right, you know, among conservatives to try to assign Orwellian characteristics to stuff that are not Orwellian. Yeah. And that misuse of newspeak is one of them when, like you said, newspeak is actually tearing down language to simplify it, whereas what we're seeing with linguistic development is not doing that, not kind of converging words together. And the whole use of the word antichrist is from a verse that says, uh, he who is not of Christ, he is antichrist. Yeah. Whereas it has taken on a whole new meaning here to mean basically anything that is not of God, as well as meaning the man, as well as meaning the regime, as well as meaning the demonic influence. Mm-hmm. This is a convergence of language in a form of newspeak. Newspeak does not equate to the word propaganda or well meant something very specific when he created that. Yeah. Speaking of 1984, though, we get our first official border crossing as we close out and move into the last chapter that we're going to discuss. We move out of chapter 12 into chapter 13. They reach the Israeli border. They are brought in for questioning. It looks like there's no way out. Zion hides on the bus, gets down under the seat. Buck is brought in for questioning. Everyone back at home gets the overwhelming urge to pray for Buck.
1: Yep. And those prayers actually do work out in this because the guy that actually goes in to check the bus, I believe his name is Anis, which means close friend in Arabic. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I looked that up. Yeah, uh, Annis' close friend. And uh, he actually, he goes up, um, shines his flashlight at him. Uh, Zion looks directly into the, the beam. The guy kind of slumps down and goes, hey, you better be who I think you are or you are a dead man. Zion goes, young man, my name is Zion Ben Judah. He says, Rabbi Ben Judah, my name is Annas. Pray as you never prayed um, that my report will be believed. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Cameron, as God is my witness, the young man stood and walked out of the bus. I have been lying here, praising God with my tears ever since.
0: So we find out that God working in mysterious ways, Annas, the border guard, who comes in direct contact with Zion, is one of the 144,000 and protects him. Mm -hmm. So they make it through the border crossing. And by the way, may the Lord bless you and keep you. That is Numbers chapter 6, verse 24. That gets used quite a bit as a benediction in a lot of church services. Right. So kind of a blessing.
1: Real quick, uh, just because we kind of jumped, I I jumped a little bit ahead into the next chapter. To uh reveal the Anis thing right at the end of 13 as Buck is going to the border crossing, he actually uh hears that his his real name, uh, Buck Williams, because he's still going by Herb Cats here, uh, is currently like wanted.
0: Oh yeah, um, because on the TV he is wanted in connection with Zion Ben who is being labeled a Christian terrorist now, and they're taking some of his preaching out of context, specifically Matthew 10 verse 34, where he says, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. Which
1: is actually an interesting verse, because one of the first times I fell away from any semblance of faith, that was the verse that did it.
0: I come to divide son and daughter from mother and father, and Mm -hmm. all of that. Like, I'm not coming to bring peace, I'm coming to bring a sword, which is kind of contradictory when you think about the Prince of Peace, so I can see why that would do that to you. All right, let's go ahead and bring it on home. They get to the Egyptian border. They kind of go through the main area there and they hit the Egyptian side and they say usually the Egyptians are going to rubber stamp anything that the Israelis have done. So they think they're going to have a pretty easy time. They don't even really try to hide it very much. Zion just sort of walks out. He's already been cleared so he acts like he's going to go get processed and goes and gets processed and then they just get back in the bus. However... They don't quite pull it off because as they are making their way across the desert, they suddenly see squad car lights in their rearview mirror because they've realized that two men did not get processed. Only one did. So they're hiding something. So the border cops are coming after
1: them. Yeah, basically, Buck goes, Zion, strap in and just starts flooring it at over 80 kilometers per hour, which they have to convert for us uh, still using Miles Americans with the 50 mile an hour range.
0: Yeah, it, it it's about as much juice as you can get out of a rickety old school bus, but they can see very far back in the desert. They know that this cop is eventually going to catch up with them, and from what I've seen of the Sinai Desert, it's not that flat. Like, it's flat in some places, but there's a lot of rock formations, and so you could easily lose someone, but I'm not going to try to be pedantic about that. I think I might have already succeeded, but I'm not going to belabor that point. So they keep driving through. They know the cop's going to catch up with them, but they're gunning it for all it's worth eventually the cop does catch up tells him to pull over buck refuses the cop pulls out a gun (laughs) and they know they're in trouble so they can see the lights of the airport in the distance this is actually a pretty good action scene buck goes into full tom clancy mode again and he's like hey zion pour all the gas cans that we have into that bucket
1: and then Zahn starts doing it. He's like, I'm going to be checking to see if the cigarette lighter's um, working on the dashboard. And Zahn's like, aren't those the first to go out? And he's like, for our sakes, let's hope not. And then, Cameron, Cameron, <laughs> are you planning to blow off this bus? You really are a scholar, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, he's going to blow the bus up with a bucket full of gasoline. So they
0: start gunning it. They know there's a roadblock. Buck's going to try to run. He's going to try to run people over. So he's going to try to commit murder. He, they finally make it. He's called Ken Ritz. Ken is on his way. He's gassed up the plane. He is ready to go. They realize they're not going to be able to fully run the roadblock. So Buck fishtails the bus. Has Zion kick the bucket full of gasoline out the back of the bus, toss the cigarette lighter into the bucket of gasoline to create literally a fiery death trap
1: for the people at the border roadblock. The, the entire time, Zion's
0: just like, Buck, we're going to die. Buck gets very Han Solo, like, never tell me the odds, right, right? At this point, there's a fiery explosion. They make it through the roadblock. They both take off sprinting. Buck gets shot climbing onto the plane, but Kenritz gets wheels up. They get airborne and they finally make their escape. As chapter 13 comes to the end, they sit in the cabin of the plane and they pray and thank God they've been able to successfully escape.
1: Whew. Yeah, it's been a ride, huh? That, yeah. And like, yeah, we, we get all these little like cool action scenes like that. Those just kind of keep coming. As the book goes along, we we get a few more of those. And so, yeah, like another decent section, Uh, not too too terribly much boring about it. Yeah, it went by
0: really quickly. Yeah, I know we got to go off on some tangents on this one, as we normally do when we have a lot of action scenes, because honestly, the book's going to tell them a little better than we are.
1: Yeah, this is one of the ones that if you want to follow along, you're going to get more of uh, the little highlights that we missed. Uh, Again, buy these secondhand. You can get them pretty cheap. I just actually ordered a bunch of hardcovers from a secondhand website. And so I'm going to have them all set so
0: that I can start putting them on my little shelf, my little trophy shelf (laughs) to have my left behind trophies. But all right, that's section number two. We are two thirds of the way through Nikolai Rise of the Antichrist. And that's going to do it for us this week on I Survived the Rapture. Thank you guys for listening. I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. And until next time, never throw a cigarette lighter into a can of gasoline. Ever. I don't care for what reason. Just don't do it. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, You can email us at rapturepod at gmail.com, and we really want to hear from you.
1: Thanks for listening.